it's important to remember that almost every bad guy thinks they're the good guy of the story. Ooh. It's not a you know revolt of the machines. It's a robotics revolution. And by that, what I'm talking about is that it's more akin to an industrial revolution. When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Hey, everyone. This episode is a little bit different from our norm here at Post Everything, both in terms of our focus and our guest. Our guest today is Peter Warren Singer. And by the way, that is not the Princeton ethicist who has written many books and is probably more familiar to people. Peter Warren Singer is a strategist and senior fellow at New America. He's a professor of practice at Arizona State University and the founding and managing partner of an LLC called Useful Fiction. He was previously a senior fellow and director of the Center for 21st Century Security and Intelligence at the Brookings Institution. He was even described in the Wall Street Journal as the, quote, premier futurist in the national security environment. He's also made, seriously, he's made the top 100 of the most influential thinkers on several national security and foreign affairs lists. And he is also the official mad scientist for the U.S. Army's Training and Doctrine Command, TRADOC. He's consulted for the U.S. military, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and the FBI, but also he's advised a range of entertainment companies, including Warner Brothers, DreamWorks, Universal, HBO, Disney, and the History Channel. In short, it's quite a resume. So we're not necessarily talking to Peter today about national security per se, though that is the setting for some of our conversation. We're talking to him because he co-authored a book called Burn In, and that book, co-authored with August Cole, is a science fiction work set in the near future where artificial intelligence, as well as robots operating on artificial intelligence, has dramatically altered society. To sum this up, from a review written by the Council on Foreign Relations, it summarizes it as this. The setting of Burn-In is an economy in which all the jobs have been taken over by robots. At first, it was cleaning, food prep, and shelf stocking, millions of low-paid jobs held by low-skilled workers. But in the opening pages of the book, the robots have come for the corporate lawyers. The Ivy League-trained husband of the FBI agent main character now spends 12 hours a day on the couch being rewarded by AI for positively engaging through a VR headset with a lonely retiree 3,000 miles away. His wife has been tasked with training a robot as her new partner, her uncle, who had a good job maintaining a fleet of robots, lost it when a new fleet of robots was brought in to do the maintenance. If that's not meta, I don't know what is. So if we're trying to navigate this life in a, quote, liminal age, right, anyway, that was and what will be what we can't see yet, we need an imagination big enough and flexible enough to anticipate what's coming around the bend. And so as one of the world's leading innovators in national security and defense, we asked Peter to stretch our imagination and trace the dots back to now in order to prepare for and hopefully shape our liminal near future. So let's jump right in. All right, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. I want to start here and I'd love to hear more about kind of like your story because I was trying to figure out how to introduce you and describe your experience and expertise in the world of AI and also national security. And when I give somebody a bio, I have to kind of think about like, oh, what would be interesting to put on here? And it takes a little bit of work. You have a bio on your website and then you have a shorter bio. And so it seems like you have some significant experience and you're even described as an official mad scientist. That's like in capital letters, M and S, for the U.S. Army's <laughs> Training and Doctrine Command or TRADOC for those in the industry. I'm, I'm a vet myself, so I'm very familiar with TRADOC. Um and, but that's just one of many roles that you've had in shaping U.S. national security, defense, and intelligence. So you seem to have gravitated towards cybersecurity and AI in particular. But what drew you initially and what have you learned or seen that you wish that the average person better understood about the implications of technology on national security? 
Oh my gosh, that's a, a huge extended question. We could spend the whole podcast on that. So I will start when I was a child, <laughs> but you know, I actually, there's a book that I did called Wired for War that was a look at, it was the first book to look at robots in war and how this thing that had once been science fiction had turned real. And I decided to start that book with my own story. And my story is that I grew up as a kid that you probably might have been or no kids like it. I had grown up, you know, reading the books in my grandfather's study. He had served in World War II and, you know, loving the history, but I was also influenced by science fiction. I was and still am a Star Wars fan. And yes. so, you know, I was the kind of kid that if you handed me a stick within about a minute, it was either going to be a lightsaber or it was going to be, you know, like a Tommy gun to defend the neighborhood against, you know, the Nazi army. And so that's my origin point, influenced by family history and what I was interested in. And I've gone on, you know, hopefully to be a little bit more mature than that. But basically, I do research and writing and consulting and policy advisory where national security and technology and issues of change come crashing mm. together. So, you know, I've written books and I think we'll get to talk about that, you know, both nonfiction and what we call useful fiction. I also work with government, primarily the U.S. military, but also our allies, sometimes help corporations as well. And then finally, I teach and it might be teaching at U.S. war colleges or academies or at uh, university classes. So I give a really extended answer. It's I've got kids and, you know, what does your dad do? And they're like, oh gosh. Dude, everything. <laughs> That's good. So in your story, you know, when were you starting to tune into artificial intelligence and like really take that seriously? That mm. was becoming part of your world. I've always been drawn to topics that are, going to be significant, but people don't yet fully grasp either the significance or kind of grasp the, the basics of it. Mm. And the starting point for me actually wasn't as much on the AI side, the software side, as it was on the hardware side, on the robotic side. I remember this is back in the mid 2000s. And I was actually at a conference that was on the future of war. And it was one of these big conferences in Washington, D.C., three days. The speakers range from, you know, multi-star generals to secretaries of defense to the top experts of the day. And, you know, I was at the little bit earlier in my career. I was not a speaker at it. I was just attending, taking notes. And this is in the middle of Iraq war. I'm in Afghanistan. And as the speakers are talking about, you know, what's happening next in war, the word robot, the word AI was not used once. Hmm. And I had friends that were, for example, you know, they were serving in squadrons in the Air Force that were flying planes over the Middle East, but they were living in the United States and, you know, not leaving the United States. It was the start of unmanned systems, predators, global hawks. You had on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, the early use of robots to, you know, find and defuse roadside bombs. And so I was like, this is just a crazy disconnect. And I think in part, it's because we think of AI and robots as being, you know, some distant sci-fi thing. And yet here it is, it's starting to become real. So that was the first entry point for me on it and decided to you know, explore it further, write on it further, advise on it further. And it sort of set me on a journey where, you know, I tried to meet with everyone from the designers of the robots, you know, what inspired them, the software programmers to what it's like to be a soldier using them to what it's like to be a sci-fi author to see your vision start to come true. The ethics side of it, you know, it just seemed there were so many open-ended questions. And then of course, that takes you off into the civilian world as well, where, you know, I'm starting to interact, you know, the designers, the scientists, the companies, and that, you know, bluntly also was a little bit frustrating. I think we're kind of entering this area as well, where the various companies were 
not blinded to the opportunity and the technology. They were blinded to the real world problems that would result as real world people began to use the technology. It was always about like, you know, here's how it's going to solve all these problems. And I'd be the one going like, yeah, but what about when bad guys get them? Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, talking about technology getting into our hands, we've seen a huge explosion with large language models like chat GPT, you know, in the last six months getting into the hands of everybody. How has that rippled through your world and what you do? Oh, wow. So you can think about it in terms of the impact on you know policy and national security, but there's also the impact on our own individual careers. On the policy and national security side, the military is starting to grapple with, hold it, how can I apply this to certain areas of our work? And then being stunned by hold it, what are the ramifications of that? So to give an example, there's a new project where they're applying it to command center, where it will essentially look at all the data coming in on the map of you know where the enemy is, what your own forces have, and it will gently give you suggestions as the commander. Would you like to move your unit over here? Would you like to aim your cannon over there and do it in a very, you know, as if it's an, a human staff officer telling you that. Sheesh, wow. And of course, the human role in it is not a technological limit. It's a choice, right? Because all the suggestions that it's giving, it could do it on its own. You know, it's like, I've gone ahead and written the order for you, human. Would you like it? Yes or no? And so we're starting to, you know, wrestle with kind of what that means. There's also, of course, huge competition. You know, what's driving it just like in the past with nuclear weapons or whatever. It's not just about us. It's a fear of, well, what is the other side? Are they going to use it? Are they going to get ahead? So there's a huge amount of concern about China moving ahead in this space that then in turn drives us to use it more. So there's all that going on in the national security realm, a little bit just like in the business realm, right? Part of the explosion of the different models that are being pushed out there is basically it's competition between these corporations, right? I mean, including one that was originally supposed to be a nonprofit and then they're like, yeah, well, we're going to make it a for-profit. I remember when we yeah. were trying to, so whatever. But you know, they're all pushing it out there and in many cases, pushing it out there bluntly a little bit too early. And, you know, something goes awry, it says back racist or sexist things. And they're like, how could that have happened? You're like, because it interacted with the real world. Mm -hmm. So that's our real world side. On applying to our own live side, I'll give you two examples. And you probably run into this maybe in, in your own field as well. One, as I mentioned, I teach a class. It's graduate students, and each week they're you know supposed to post a discussion of the weekly reading. And there was one of them that it read slightly off. And you know, then the question is, did it read slightly off because maybe English is a second language? Maybe it's, you know, I'm looking at your partner there. It's someone who's got a military engineering background. And so they often tend to kind of write like robots almost. Come um, on. Or is it that a student actually had, you know, the AI do it for them? It didn't have obvious signs the way just six months ago, there would have been really obvious signs. And so- mm. Every teacher is now starting to grapple with that, whether it's, you know, this is at the university level, but I assume it's the same thing starting in high school. So that kind of questioning. And then in turn, as a writer, you start to wonder, you know, hold it. Are people going to say, hey, we don't need your writing. We'll just say, write me a story in the style of Joe Smith, and it'll pop out a version of it. And the same thing that artists are doing right now, there, some artists are using it to create really wild, interesting artwork. My partner in the business that I run, we do, you know, training workshops and, and he likes to do that for his visuals, his PowerPoints. The visuals are all AI generated and he kind of uses it as a talking point. You know, this is what the AI generated of your company, your unit, you know, let's look at it and kind of this is, isn't it fascinating? Sometimes they're cool. Sometimes they're scary. It's thought provoking. 
But there's also obviously the concern of hold it. Does it do its job well enough that the 90% solution is good enough that people are like, well, why should we go with them? Yeah. That's wild. You know, so many ramifications. Write me a sermon in the style of dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Brad and I have been joking about that a little bit. And, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing. Just thinking through that. And even for us, like what part of our jobs can we rely on, you know, artificial intelligence for? And it's, you know, there's this like ethical side that we wrestle with. But, you Mm -hmm. know, it's funny. We also, Brad and I have beaten the dead horse over the joke about Skynet and Terminator and But at the same time, like, I can't help but listen to you and just get a little bit of anxiety. So I'm just curious, like, from where you're sitting, as we're developing this stuff, like, is this safe? Is it dangerous? Where are we going in the next three to five years in terms of, like, how dangerous this could be in the hands of the average person or, you know, as AI continues to learn or however that works from where you're sitting, how safe or dangerous is the development of AI over the next few years? So this is one of those areas where I think our cultural narratives might be taking us down the wrong pathways, at least in what we kind of worry and obsess about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you framed it in that sci-fi Skynet, you know, again, a reference, a pop culture reference, or it's the Matrix or whatever. It's the idea of the robot revolution. It's a takeover. It's a revolt against the humans, right? Mm-hmm. right. And that, you know, that dates back literally thousands of years. You can find discussion of it in, you know, ancient Greek mythology. What is it? The Talos. You can find discussion of it in old Judaic texts, the Gollum. Or if it's in, you know, what we would describe as the entertainment world in science fiction, you know, we've been talking about it for well over a hundred years. The very word robot is first used in sci-fi for a machine that revolts against its human masters. I mean, it comes from the Czech word for serf or servitude, and when it's from a period when the serfs revolted. And so that's been our narrative. That's been our worry. That's also when you see the, you know, the Elon Musk of the world or the like, they constantly, you know, they're talking about that as the fear factor. And there's an irony in that. It's like, okay, dude, so if you're so afraid of it, you're also plowing you're kind of making it come true, right? Which is a part of the popular narrative as well. The creator, the Dr. Frankenstein's monster thing, right? Yeah. But I would argue that that's not the revolt to be concerned about. Okay. At least within your and my lifetime. Instead, it's not a you know revolt of the machines. It's a robotics revolution. And by that, what I'm talking about is that it's more akin to an industrial revolution. Hmm. It's an idea of a new, not one single technology, but a suite of technologies. Just like back in, you know, the 17 and 1800s, it was everything from, you know, steam engine to train to telegraph to better use of metals, whatever. Same thing here. It's, you know, it's not one type of AI or it's robotics. It's things going on in synthetic bio that are happening because of AI, new energy sources. It's this change in industry the technologies of work, of war, but then just like in the 17 and 1800s, that has huge, massive effects, right? You know, there are new winners and losers in business. There's new winners and losers in politics. You know, it's part of the story of the rise of the United States as a nation. It's also part of the story of, you know, like the decline of whatever, the Ottoman Empire. It's within nations. The story of our Civil War can't be told without referencing, you know, industrialized North, agrarian South, and the divisions that come from that. You've got its effect on, you know, you mentioned ethics. You have positives that come out of the Industrial Revolution, our concepts of workers' rights, children's rights, women's rights, all, you know, modern democracy, all come out of the Industrial Revolution. Oh, by the way, so does, you know, communism and fascism. And we spend most of the 20th century kind of working our way through it. And so I feel like we're going through a similar kind of change in that, you know, you have all these incredible 
positives of this new type of industry, new technologies, things that weren't possible a generation earlier. But yeah, it's challenging. It's traumatic. And it's not going to play out like in one or two years or like you said, three to five. I mean, this is lifetime issues, right? In the same way that, you know, you couldn't tell the story of the Industrial Revolution like, oh, it's just the steam engine in Britain in the early 1800s. It's, you know, all the way forward to the train and the opening up of the American West, you know, all that stuff. That's what we're going through right now. And I think that's that's what makes it obviously so exciting. And, you know, it's creating a lot of possibilities of, you know, medical breakthroughs. And, you know, we can just go on and on about all the cool, awesome stuff. And the winners of it are obviously excited. You got all these new billionaires or trillionaires, but, you know, there are, there are challenges. There's losers. There's people, these transition periods are tough. Man, hearing you list all of those evolutions and innovations, as well as the difficulty in the transition period, I was listening to an interview that Tristan Harris was doing with someone to speak about the European Union's ability to regulate and how they were doing things. And in that interview, he, I can't remember if him or her made a really interesting point, which is all those things during the Industrial Revolution that happened, the good ethical regulations that came out of it did not come until we already transgressed them in the first place. They were responses to a problem that happened and then we figured it out. But we typically don't change a whole lot without actually failing first. And that is concerning. I think that's one of the, the dynamics of AI that I hear people talk about a lot is like, do we actually have the same margin or flexibility, ability to learn from mistakes? Because so much of our interconnectedness across the world makes it feel like there's no margin for error with AI, because as that becomes systemic, you can't untangle that, right? And so I want to use that actually as a transition here, because Peter, you wrote an incredible science fiction, useful fiction book called Burn In that a friend of mine introduced me to. And while it's technically science fiction, it takes place in a, I want to say semi-dystopian, but really it's actually full dystopian, but very familiar still near future. And that was one of the things that made it so eerie is this was not so foreign the science fiction, the emphasis was on the like historical fiction side in the future, as opposed to like the really far out science kind of side of things. And the book is called Burn In, The Real Robotic Revolution. And I want to ask about the book specifically, but can you first talk about the LLC you created, Useful Fiction, and how Burn In is an example of what you're trying to do with that in terms of how you're using story and narrative to help expand imagination? So useful fiction is akin to the trick that I play on my kids in the morning when I sneak fruit and veggies into their smoothies. <laughs> and so what it is, is that the example of burn in, but in, in, you know, it might be a novel, it might be a short story, is that you're taking the kale of a topic, the facts, the research, the things that people need to know. And then rather than sharing it with them through a 180-page research report or a lengthy tome or a PowerPoint briefing, and there's, you know, probably to your audience, you know, people in business or government are like, oh, God, yeah. Instead, you're taking the facts, you're taking the important ideas and wrapping them into a narrative. So with Burnin, it actually started out as a project called AI Visualized. And we basically did multiple years of research on trying to identify what do people need to know about AI and robotics and changes in the internet that are happening all around us. And the need to knows range from, okay, you know, what are the different types of AI? How does it work? To what are the ways that everyone from Starbucks to Amazon to the police are planning on using it? And, you know, not just me saying this is their plan, but like, here's their, you know, the trademark that they've gotten, the patent that they've gotten for it, or here's where they have announced their plans to what are some of the, um, ethical dilemmas that might come out of it. Issues like algorithmic bias, which if you don't understand, you're not going to be able to handle these phenomena. And so essentially we identified those issues and then we share them through a story. So Burnin is a story that follows an FBI agent as she hunts a terrorist through the streets of Washington, D.C. in the near future. But along the way, by following her, 
we see, you know, everything from, like I mentioned, the Starbucks to, you know, what it's like in her home with her daughter and her husband, et cetera. We were talking earlier, the effect of it on his job. And so you're using the story as a way to share these. And so it's the deliberate blend of narrative and nonfiction. And so what we've done is we've taken that methodology, that approach, and in the business side, we basically do it in support of organizations, you know, whether it's government or Fortune 500 or nonprofits, we work with them to identify, you know, what are the important issues? What are the important stories, so to speak, that you need to mm-hmm. tell? What is your strategy? What is your white paper? What's this new research? What's the briefing for your board? And can we turn it into scenario stories that'll share those ideas in a manner that, like a smoothie, not only is the audience more likely to consume it, but you know the science shows that the nutrients are more likely to be absorbed. And so that's the idea behind useful fiction. I wanted to hit one last thing. You described Burnin as dystopian. You actually revealed something of yourself as a reader, because one of the things that it was trying to play with is how our vision's of technology and the new technologies that are coming, for some people, it is their utopia, but for other people, the very same outcome is their dystopia. So to use that example of going into a Starbucks or going into a store, there's a moment in it that I, as a parent, find dystopian, but other people may not. And it's our character she goes into a coffee shop with her daughter and the person working behind the counter greets her daughter by name. And then on one hand, you could go, oh, that's great. You know, they know me. They, they already know my order. But the parent has in her head, is it because they know my daughter because we've come here before or is it because they've run facial recognition and matched it and they know everything about us before we ever entered the store? So I find it as a parent dystopian, but if you're running a business or maybe if you're a kid today, you go, yeah, that's awesome, right? So I just, you know, again, that notion of dystopia and utopia, that's one of the things that, you know, we're kind of playing with as we enter this world. Well, just looking up the book on Amazon, even as we're speaking, it looks like it's got some really solid reviews. And if you're a listener and want to check this out, if you're a member of Audible, you can actually get it for free. And it's also available on Kindle and there's a hardcover, but it looks like the book has really gotten some great reviews. And so one of the quotes that you mention in the book is that you quote Carl Sagan. And if I can read the quote, one of the characters in the book quotes Carl Sagan and says, I have a foreboding of an America in my children or grandchildren's time when the United States is a service an information economy when nearly all the key manufacturing industries have slipped away to other countries, when awesome technological powers are in the hands of a very few and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues, when the people have lost the ability to set their own agendas or knowledgeably question those in authority, when clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes, our critical faculties in decline, Unable to distinguish between what feels good and what's true, we slide almost without noticing back into superstition and darkness. And thanks for hanging with that quote. But the reason why I think that's interesting is it's hard to hear that quote and not think of social media's impact on our society over the last decade. And since we've handled that so interestingly as a society, I just have a twofold question. How has social media and all the misinformation or disinformation it's facilitated conditioned us to be maybe vulnerable to AI and maybe some of the risks there? And how do we learn from social media's impact to prepare us, if not prevent us from the world in which burn-in is set? Oh, wow. Um, As you were saying that quote from Sagan, and he described, you know, clutching our crystals, you know, I couldn't help but think he's before that time, but... 
it's akin to clutching, you know, the smartphone in our hand, looking for the answer, being guided by the algorithms. Oh, man. And that's true, whether you are talking, you know, we would say, oh, that's just like our kids. But, you know, let's be blunt. Baby boomers actually have, I believe the data shows a six times more likelihood to share mis and disinformation online. You know, my joke on it is that it did to them what they always said video games would do to us. But uh, (laughs) uh, that's so true. (laughs) So you asked two questions. You said, one, how has social media potentially conditioned us to be vulnerable to AI? You know, I think part of it is simply put the social media networks, they are on one hand akin to a public square, almost like public infrastructure. But at the end of the day, they are owned by either individuals or enterprises, and they are for profit. And so they are literally designed with profit in mind. And so they do better, the greater number of users, the greater number of time on platform, the greater amount of interactivity. And so as a result, they, they the platform, but then now increasingly the algorithm of the platform is constantly steering you towards sort of, you know, little dopamine hits of emotion. And, you know, we've discovered that while it would be awesome that love and joy are the only emotions we like to share online, anger is also a very effective emotion online because how do people react to anger? They get angry. They want to share anger. And then you sharing your anger, maybe I disagree. And then I get angry. And so we've got that virality of anger. You've got the phenomena of people have described it in different ways, but it's, you know, essentially it rewards like-mindedness. You tend to cluster with other people that naturally share your interests, whether it's, you know, people who are of your same faith interest to fellow, you know, New England Patriots fans to fellow political. And then that creates kind of an us and them echo chambering, et cetera. I could go on and on around those phenomena. Um, And then in particular, malicious actors, whether they are foreign governments, domestic, I describe them as conflict entrepreneurs, people who see opportunity Mm -hmm. and anger, they have learned how to exploit these dynamics. And so, you know, essentially it's a space where, yes, the algorithm shapes much of what you see and therefore much of what you think and feel. And then going back to the purpose of useful fiction of education, you know, one of the things that I wish could happen, and, you know, I think this is needed for America, is that we need a lot more education not, you know, people, oh, yes, we need science. What I'm talking about is just understanding the dynamics of how the system, the platform that you're on works. Why is the algorithm sending me this information? How do I tell the difference between something that is fact versus opinion? How can I parse together reliable, unreliable sources? These are very basic, what we call digital literacy. It's taught in other nations It's not, for the most part, taught in the United States. Hmm. And notice, I didn't say anything right, left. I didn't say censorship. Mm -hmm. This is all just, you know, if you're in this space, you need to understand it. And going back to my notion as a parent, you know, our kids are just like our grandparents and we are bombarded with this, you know, and so whether they are looking for information on their favorite NBA team to COVID to who built the pyramids they're online searching for the answers, but because of the dynamics of this space, they're often sent down the rabbit hole. I mean, you know, Google who built the pyramids and within, you know, a couple of hops, you're finding out that, you know, aliens built the pyramids. Sorry, aliens didn't build the pyramids, (laughs) but, you know, but you can read it online. So yeah, so there's there. The second question that you asked is um, the aspect of, you know, what are lessons learned? And I think a big issue that comes out of the rise of social media and its power is companies that are highly individualized where it's a single, you know, it's a founder, a singular person in charge of it. They go through this arc where they're lionized. They're the heroes of the day and often for things they've not done. You know, they're, they're an engineer who developed something and hit it at a right moment. And then suddenly we're looking to them for answers on everything from, you know, politics to faith. To, and it's like, 
this is a person who is really good at X. It doesn't mean yeah. they're really good at X, Y, Z, A, B, C, yes. but, but oh, by the way, because they're now a billionaire and whatever, they take on, they believe they're really good at X and they now have the power sometimes to implement and shape and how they act, how they acted during the age of social media and how they're acting now during the age of AI, I think the best parallel is adolescence. Adolescence, mm. you know, they've got the sort of the strength, the size of an adult, but they're ungainly, they're awkward, they're, they don't have the developed brain, the developed morality, they're bumping into things, they're making dumb mistakes. You know, so we've handed over too much power in our society to adolescents. And oh, by the way, everyone's listening to this, thinks I'm talking about one or another tycoon. And you know, you don't even know which one I'm talking about when I say they're an adolescent, right? And so, you know, your hope is that they develop responsibility and become more mature. But in society, in the economy, in business, you actually don't leave things to adolescents to be in charge of as individuals, let alone as a overall class. And that's my concern that we saw that play out with social media. It's playing out again with the realm of AI. Something you're describing, I feel like is circling around something that I've been thinking about a lot and that especially worries me about the AI growth and acceleration is the way those, for lack of a better term, I call them, you know, Silicon Valley gurus, right? But they also own a company, right? They have been functioning as a kind of mediator, right? They mediate information, they mediate meaning, they mediate truth, our perception of reality. And for social media, that mediation has kind of been clothed or camouflaged by a user design and a user experience that is, you know, the respective social media platform. What AI seems to be doing is coming out of the background and just full on replacing that user design, like eliminating the, the barrier between you and that mediator. And because it feels like a more pure experience, it's going to also be a lot more attractive as a mediator that we can skip like, you know, because even though with social media, you know, we're not thinking about like, I wonder what Elon Musk thinks about this, or I wonder what, you know, Mark Zuckerberg thinks about this. No, but that's what's happening when we are consulting the network of people that come up on our newsfeed. They are curating the wisdom through an algorithm, the quote unquote wisdom that we are looking for. AI does that, but it's in the reverse, right? The person is the user design and experience, but it's a synthetic person. Like it's a synthetic relationship. It's not real. And so the human part gets hidden behind that. And I worry about like if social media and that dynamic that you're describing of adolescence, to put it another way, artificial intelligence is especially the way it is functioning now as a large language model is actually more of a average intelligence like the average of humanity and the data that's been available to them to feed into their large language models and learn from it. So how, <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to ask is how in the world can we see social media differently and learn from how terribly and foolishly we have handled that technology, that Pandora's box and not make at least the same mistakes or worse ones with AI? Oh, wow. So many different issues that you hit there. Let me divide it into three. The first is this notion of media and mediate. You know, if people are interested more in this, I did a book called Like War. It was a nonfiction book on you know, how do we understand what's going on in social media from its start to today. And apologies for getting, you know, wonky and historic, but, you know, literally the term media is, you know, from Latin in the middle. And it did not exist until we get the printing press, where essentially the early owners of the printing press are making money printing Bibles, but they're not able to print Bibles all day long. And so the publishers, the press, create the idea of a newspaper, a newsletter, and that's how they will also make money. And thus the rise of the press, the media, the thing in the middle that takes the events of all the events happening in the world 
and says, these are the ones that are important and worthy enough for you to know about and interact with. And oh, by the way, pay me for. That's the origin of the media. It's this thing in the middle that's almost always been about a for-profit notion. Then we get social media and the promise, the idea is, hold it, you know, there's nothing in the middle. It's you, it's I, you post what you saw, what you care about, I do as well. And there's nothing in the middle deciding what's important, nor, you know, let's be clear, kind of having as an example, a journalistic code of ethics or whatever. And we sort of act like it's unvarnished. But again, there is something in the middle. It's a corporation or an individual that's profit seeking. And oh, by the way, there's algorithms, just like, you know, that are sort of deciding out of everything that's happening, being talked about. These are the ones that you want to know, find out about. And even people like, well, I don't check that. Well, look, even across your friend list, etc. So that notion of the thing in the middle, it's always been there. It's just changing now. Mm-hmm. The second part is the worry of What can we learn from? What are some worries moving forward? One is with many of these models, we are training them. They are learning how to act off of where all the data is and where all the data is, is the internet. And the internet is to do the Star Wars parallel. It's a hive of villainy and scum. You know, it's most icily, right? Yeah, we love that. And, you know, so it's got some really wonderful, awesome, you know, but it's also got some awful things there. And there's, you know, kind of reward structures of people having fun. So, you know, consistently these models keep being tricked into being awful in some way, shape or form. But I'm just using the idea of, we're often having, it's what's known as algorithmic bias, where the algorithm somehow receives biased data. It's data that's not diverse enough, data that's incomplete, data that's been entered wrong. And it's that example of you know the GPS that drives you down the alleyway, and it's telling you that this is the right route, and it's not because somehow bad data was entered in there. That's a concern about a lot of the models that we're using right now to get the scale of data they're pulling from an inappropriate or incomplete domain. How can we do this better? I think, you know, there's a couple of, you always want to learn from others. And so you want to learn from history, the experience of others in history. You want to learn from others in the contemporary that are doing better. So as an example, I think there's obvious patterns in history, including of, you know, the creators now going, oh, what did I just do? But, you know, trying to set certain guardrails, trying to, we call it in the military world, red team, you know, plan and anticipate for what the bad uses are before they happen so that you can maybe preempt them or maybe limit the consequences the example of having multiple points of view looking at the problem. So it shouldn't just be the scientists and engineers that decide how it's implemented, just like it shouldn't be you know, a politician, just like it shouldn't be a person of faith. It should be pulling in you know, all these different insights as you're developing these rules and guidelines. Parallel to the social media, let's look at other nations that have handled this better. So you know, my joke in much of the cyber world, so if there's you know, the WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? In the cyber world, it's WWED, what would Estonia do? Estonia, this small country, but vibrant democracy, successful economy, and it's figured out everything from how to navigate social media threats much better than us, even though it's bombarded with them by Russia, to it has a democracy that's a more interactive, more representative. It has an education system that's better preparing its kids for the future. Hey, let's, you know, I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American, but part of being American is let's learn from others. And if others, Mm. our partners and allies are doing awesome, let's learn from them. And so there's a lot of really cool things that other nations are doing that we could better implement here, particularly, you know, when it's on challenges that we're not facing well. Man, I want to ask one real quick question to kind of wrap up this part, because in your book, information and data plays almost kind of a secondary antagonist role. Like it's not the terrorist everybody's hunting, but it's actually the thing that undergirds and is the foundation for almost all of the technological dystopia in burn-in. And the ability to draw on that data and leverage it becomes a very powerful thing. 
including you have one guy in the book. His name is Willow Shaw. And I appreciate how you can't actually really tell if he's one of the good guys or one of the bad guys, but he's kind of this like nefarious, secretive Tony Stark character. And it becomes very clear that something has happened between the like now and the near future that it takes place in where the government protections for the right to privacy and the constitutional implications that like all of that has held strongly ish, mostly such that the government can't spy on or leverage a lot of the same data. However, our uncritical clicking of, I agree to the use of cookies on websites and all the little things that we don't think about in our day to day and using the internet have added up And we have given willingly permission for private companies to use our data and then leverage it such that this Willow Shaw, Tony Stark character, has a lot more power than the political mechanisms of government. And so I guess my question in this is, that's a surprisingly not talked about very often part of the AI conversation is like so much of this recent development is only possible because of its access to data to learn on. And so how do we, how do we think about that differently? Not to like just shut it down and become Luddites because I don't think, I think the cat's out of the bag in that sense. Right. But how do we become more wise in the way that we are either regulating and or giving permission to use data? Like, what are we not seeing there that is the vegetable that we need to sneak into our smoothie? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things <laughs> at play. One is the future model, data, privacy, and our political and even day-to-day lives. At one end of the spectrum, you have the model that's emerging in China, Russia, authoritarian nations, where there's massive amount of data collection both by the government and by corporations, but it's all forced to be shared with the government. And so, you know, it's sometimes called the social credit system where like there is a data pool that has everything from, you know, whether, you know, what your job prospects are to whether you bought diapers or not, how long you played video games. And then all that information is churned together and companies are gathering it, the government is gathering it, but the government has access to it all. And then it uses it as a means to control you through rewards and or punishments. That's one model. At the other end of the spectrum, we have the model emerging in Europe, where you have the same technology companies that we have in the United States, but increasingly the European governments are saying there is a limit to what you can do. There is a limit to what you can gather, how you can use it, and there's also stronger limits on what the government can gather about you. Then we have the U.S. model, which is bluntly kind of haphazard, and we could talk long about why is it, but essentially our model has been, for the most part, a kind of absence of regulation in certain areas and other areas, there are strict limits. And so all the same amount of data is being gathered about you, whether it's, you know, face recognition cameras to someone knows whether you bought diapers or not, but it's in different locales and different kind of masters of that data. So, you know, and we use the example in the story of, you know, we follow these characters, they go through, you know, a city and there's police face recognition cameras, which is happening in most major cities, but the police don't know, you know, whether you bought diapers or not, but the company does, right? When you enter a store, when you go online, there's all of these agreements that you have to make, so to speak, you know, by stepping into the store, you agreed to this data being collected about you. And then what it means is that those that can gather the most data and then marketize and or weaponize that data have great power. And, you know, you think about like, we've already seen this in political campaigns where, you know, political campaigns are gathering the market data to know how to target you as an individual. And so, you know, again, the one is for people to understand that, that, you know, there is this swirl of data around it, some of which you control, some of which you don't, and understand how, 
you're using that data, how other people are using that data against you. And the other is back to the point about utopian and dystopian. You know, you described it as dystopian. Other people would say, that's awesome. You know, I go somewhere and they know everything about me. Um, it'll make my shopping experience a lot better. But, you know, starting to make the judgment about which is the world that you want to live in. And then the great thing about you know, we have some control over it. We have the control over where we go, what we buy, how we vote. We have the controls that they don't in that authoritarian state. Man, that kind of brings up probably the last of the kind of meatier questions we want to ask you today. And that is what I appreciated about what you and your co-author Arthur Cole have done in Burn In is you haven't just explored the hardware piece of the technological implications. You've also explored the software. And I don't mean necessarily the the AI part, but like the human software part, the meaning and the existential side of that, because it's been interesting lately. I feel like I'm seeing more and more people talking about this meaning crisis that we're already in the midst of. And we haven't even flirted with the edges of the dystopian world, that picture you paint and burn in. But you have so many intentional illustrations of how advances in technology, even including going to the, you know, the Starbucks to order coffee, promises a greater convenience, but also a greater shallowness. And the one example in the book that I, I think was just like heartbreaking is the protagonist's husband who they met in law school or something like that. He became a lawyer and almost immediately after graduating from law school, AI completely eliminated any need for his job whatsoever. And so this highly trained Ivy League brilliant guy is now reduced to using a gamified kind of social reward point system over virtual reality is making a meager living and a very modest salary by keeping company to a senior citizen 3000 miles away. And the addictive aspects of that push him toward stimulants and other drugs. And just like, it's so uncomfortable. And what is undergirding all of that? I mean, even the terrorists in this, you know, his, I don't want to give a, too many spoilers here, but like his avatar in the online world where he's doing his scheming is Moses. And he has an Old Testament on the desk while he's watching the video that functionally radicalized him, losing his family, right? So how are you wrestling with, and even like, I'm just thinking about, you know, your resume here. You're consulting with national security and intelligence. How does the meaning making, the sense making component and implications of AI, how is that informing the way that you're viewing this? And how in the world do we begin wrestling with that as -hmm. we go forward? Because we're not thinking about this. It's crazy that this thing that is like part of what makes us human is how we make sense of the world. That's the thing that is at most at risk when we're talking about making something in the image of ourselves as beings that bear the image of God. Oh my gosh, what a tough last question. To Sorry. <laughs> Please um, solve this problem in seven sentences or less what books could be written about. Thank you. So I'll answer it in two ways. One is on that notion of villainy and narrative, but how it applies both in hopefully good stories, but I think in the real world is it's important to remember that almost every bad guy thinks they're the good guy of the story. Ooh. That is oh. in the movies and books that I think are the best. It's the bad guy who, you know, thinks they're doing the right thing. That's the most compelling, right? You know, so if you're a, a Marvel person, it's Thanos, right? Or what we could go on and on on this. Yeah. And oh, by the way, that's also the case usually in the real world. Members of ISIS, the most, I would argue, you know, kind of villainous group of our time, they thought they were the good guys in the story wrongly. But that's an important understanding, I think, in writing a good story, finding a good story, but also navigating the real world and trying to understand you know, why things are happening a certain way to your tougher question on meaning. We deliberately chose that character to explain something that was coming out of the research. So, you know, when we talk about AI and robotics, 
and you know what it means for jobs the typical narrative is two things it had been you know one you know it's truck driver factory workers blue collar and you know the data was showing no it's it's a wide variety of jobs and so we we deliberately had the character have mm. you know one is a contract lawyer it's a very well paying job right now but it is one of the jobs that's increasingly being automated and so we wanted to show how it's you know this effect is not to any one realm the other was to show that part that we talk about of transitions. So, you know, sometimes the advocates will be like, yeah, but, you know, they'll create all these new jobs and people. And you're like, well, two things. One, the new jobs will be different. Not everyone will be attuned for them. There'll be different experiences from them. This character is living out kind of the Uber version where you have more control over your hours, but you also have less certainty in your lives. And you know, people may care about one or the other. But then the other part is to that notion of meaning. We, and you know, this is very much an American thing, we draw great meaning from our careers, what it took to get there. You know, I went to this school, I got these grades, I went through this, you know, training, and then how well you're doing in that job. And, you know, because I'm a good provider for my family, et cetera, et cetera, we draw great meaning from that. And so we thought it was both important on the nonfiction side, but also kind of powerful from a fictional standpoint to say, okay, but what happens when that thing that you draw meaning from changes or moves and is lost? And so, you know, what does it mean? to have done everything the right way, so to speak, and then have it pulled out. And how does that affect not just him as an individual, but his relationship with his wife, how he sees himself as a father? How does it affect his politics? And so I guess what I would end on is um, when we're seeking to understand, you know, some of the things that are going on around us in both the economy, but how it affects culture and politics, they often connect, right? And mm -hmm. it connects to these, you know, the places that we find meaning from the reward structures. And so, you know, if you want to understand a little bit more, you have to peel that back. You have to go, okay, how is what's going on over here in this realm, this domain? Actually, maybe it's one of the underlying causes of what's happening over here in this other domain. And then obviously you two are much better equipped to have a conversation around, okay, well, how can we also find meaning in other locales that that's the whole role of faith and religion is, you know, how do I draw the kind of meaning that will help me, you know, weather the storm to be, you know, the rock amidst it. My name's Peter. So Peter, the rock, right. But so, you know, that's the role of faith. And then there's also that notion of, connection, community, whatever. You all are much better equipped to deal with that. So that's why I'm going to end the interview on that by handing that part of the story off to you. Man, <laughs> I really appreciate that. But part of the reason I think that we have been so excited to talk to you and ask you questions is there's a difference between like knowing what the right answer is and being saturated in it. And increasingly, we're in a world that saturates us in an answer that is the opposite and antithetical that makes humans less human by reducing them to a utilitarian machine. Like it's so weird that the more that we seem to create technology, human and embodied we become. And I mm -hmm. think that there's like this upstream work that's got to be done to be able to understand the ways in which the world around us is actually very, very different, even though it's very familiar. And so this is so good. We need both of these yeah. things. It's been really helpful. I'm just curious. We mentioned your book as a resource just for people to get some handholds and some frameworks for some of the things that we've been talking about. But are there any other resources that you would suggest that we can put out there for people that want to learn more or that they want to just interested and want to read more? What would you suggest? So a couple of things. One, you know, all my work is gathered at pwsinger.com. And, you know, as you mentioned, we've referenced a variety of books and they're available on the Amazons and the like. One thing that that format of useful fiction has is an easy way to answer your question, which is it's got footnotes. So as you read it, whatever the topic is that you want to learn more about, it's got the footnote to, okay, here's another book about it. Here's an article about it. And that's a great thing of bringing together the fiction and the nonfiction. The other maybe related to the questions of social media is there's a project called the Cyber Citizenship Project, and you can find out more about it. It's at New America 
And it's basically around this notion that we were talking about of, you know, what are the better ways to equip ourselves and our children for what do they need to know about navigating social media? And it's been linked up with various education associations and media literacy associations. So, you know, Google cyber citizenship, and you should be able to find out more about it there. It's at New America. Hopefully those are some good resources. Outstanding. Man, thank you so much for joining us today. We know you got to run and this is so incredibly helpful. And I really appreciate the interdisciplinary approach to all of this. I think it's so so important and critical to actually understanding how this is all connected. So thanks, man. Thanks so much. John, that was, that was meaty. Uh, <laughs> yes. That's, that's very in depth. A, a masterclass on not just AI, but also the, all the ways AI is connected to all kinds of other things. And so my head's probably spinning as much as yours are, and we're going to have to come up with a different phrase other than head spinning, because I feel like this is a recurring theme for us whenever we talk to somebody. Well, uh, this is why we did the podcast, right? Like we <laughs> wanted to learn and man, we wanted to learn from people. We said this from people who are much smarter than us and we are doing that. <laughs> Outstanding. So what's your, so what John, what's your takeaway from this? You know, I, I know this might sound like a little elementary, but honestly, that's how I'm entering into this topic of artificial intelligence and where that's taking our culture. You know, I, I wasn't really interested in this topic and thought, you know, just, Maybe it'll go away. Maybe it won't affect us. But I mean, so then you get into the topic and you're like, okay, where do we go with this? There's a lot of alarmists out there and there's a lot of like, it's no big deal people out there. I just found it really helpful when he said, let's not think about the robot revolt. Let's more think about it in terms of like the AI revolution. And then when he compared it to the industrial revolution, that was just so helpful for me to go oh, I see, like, okay, here we are, like, we're in this liminal age, and everything is shifting so quickly. And then he just kind of compared and said, hey, listen, the Industrial Revolution, it did all these things. It was more than just like one little thing, like it triggered, you know, talks about women's rights and children's rights, there was connections to political movements like communism and fascism. And then like with the train, you know, the steam engine train, it like opens up the American West and like, you know, then you get like, I mean, buffalo become endangered species and like all this stuff, right? And it's like, oh my gosh, that's what we're in right now. It is not necessarily the robot revolt. You know, it's not necessarily Skynet or Terminator. It's this revolution that we're going through. And that was just so helpful for me to go, man, the ground has been shifting for so many other reasons. And guess what? It's not changing anytime soon with AI. It's not going to stabilize. In fact, change is going to speed up and we have no idea what the world's going to be like in five years because of this AI revolution. And then just to also think, you know, he said, Hey, when these things happen, there are winners and there are losers. And that just kind of sat heavy with me as we think about this. That's always true of the world, right? There's wars, there's movements, there's always winners and losers in a thing or people who have to pay a greater cost. But that sobered me a little bit. And so that's what yeah. I'm taking away. The robot revolt isn't the key here. It's the AI revolution. Man, yeah. My takeaway feels very related in that I just, gosh, just listening to him make all these connections. I think I've said before that like I don't really understand something until I understand how it's connected to something else. Yeah, And so the way that his mind works in terms of connecting all of these different parts and pieces of human society with artificial intelligence, I was just really struck by the the complexity of it and also how much just that kind of atmosphere is an implicit but still like existential rebuke on our expectation of certainty Hmm. and how whenever I hear or see somebody talking about AI, there are very definitive declarations being made And Mm -hmm. I think there is a catch-up that our humility has to make 
in order to actually handle this well and wisely and responsibly, right? I, I just think that this is just too complex. And that certainty kind of as a standard applies both if we swing the pendulum toward either this naive optimism and kind of techno utopianism, like you talked yeah. about, or a doomsday pessimism, right? Both of those are an expression of certainty more than humility. And so I think it's really important to slow down and have that humility. But also even as I'm saying that, I'm like, cool. Yeah, that's easy, but it's not. And I think mm -hmm. that gets to that last question we talked about with him, which I feel like we could do a whole episode on, on its own around meaning and the implications mm -hmm. of AI on meaning yeah. and how we source meaning, how we source our identity, our dignity, value, and worth. And we will be exploring a lot in this season, especially the kind of anthropology that we need to recover in order to understand the AI revolution, right? And so that anthropology and what makes us human is this ability to make sense of the world, to make sense of each other. And when we're talking about AI as this kind of exponential increase and a seismic change in how technology mediates human existence, that's a massive shock to the system of how we source meaning and of how we make sense of one another. It's going to rearrange the furniture in our brains and rearrange how we understand and see relationships. Even if it's not a conscious thing, it will functionally do that to us. And so I'm just struck by, I guess I'm feeling humbled by the conversation because I'm struck by the enormity yeah. of, of what that is going to entail because it's going to come like he said at the beginning, not through Skynet, but through these much more kind of boring and ordinary changes, the, these pre-shocks. But those are the ones that are going to like either shape us toward what's coming or prepare us for what's coming. And I think humility is essential to tackling that. Yeah, especially since there's the possibility that AI will replace us on this podcast and it will not just be post everything. <laughs> It'll be post John and post Brad. They'll just kick us off and AI will do this podcast without us. So <laughs> that's, you know, that's humbling. <laughs> we are not going to poll on whether that will be an improvement or not. So <laughs> man, that's good. Right. That's helpful, man. Well, John, this was good. And yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to what we've got coming next on the pike. So me too. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.